Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Alchemist podcast, which is an extension of my blog, Alchemist in the Making. I'm your host, Kimberly Ho, the millennial who finds interest in anything and everything with regards to architecture. So carrying on this season on the theme of Is This What You Wanted, I have the architectural filmmaker Eugenia Tan with me. Some of you may have recognized her or know her from the New Architects Melbourne or NAM events, if not her amazing, amazing company, Yuzetta. But before I go ahead and talk about anything further, uh, Eugenia, could I please get you to introduce yourself? Oh, hi. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I am a filmmaker and I have a studio called Yuzetta that is interested in architectural filmmaking. And I was an architect for a while, so I had a previous career in a sense. And yeah, I don't know. What else do I say about myself? Personally, um, I am a person, I am female, I am a migrant, so I have Chinese Malaysian heritage and we, our family came here in 1990. Um, so I grew up here, I went to university at Deakin and had a wonderful time there because uh, I was quite young when I went to uni at 16. So did construction management architecture. I'm a really passionate uh, Christian. And that's really informed a lot of how um, I've journeyed through life, especially in the last 10 years. And yeah, like it's a surreal time to be in Melbourne and um, a lot of time of reflection, but maybe that's just how I'm wired anyway. <laughs> constantly, constantly going over how things are going in life and thinking about just um, existential things, but in a in a good way, I think it's um, it's it's important to be aware of yourself so that you can hopefully be the best person that you can be in this time that we have here. Thank you so much for the introduction. <laughs> it was a really nice way to compact and unpack information. If it's any consolation, I started uni quite young as well, so I was seventeen when I started, and it has. But still young. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, but even it still feels. It feels weird to say young and hear people tell me that I'm young despite it's been two years <laughs> since I've left, since I've finished my studies. Uh, but anyhow, so the reason why I have you here today is because just knowing about your journey, your transition from being an architect as well to being a filmmaker and because a lot of my friends recently they've also expressed interest in film studies uh, mm. and also how we talk about the way we talk about film is very different having studied architecture as well and i thought it would be really nice to have you on board to share your personal journey with us if you could just tell us a little bit about your life before becoming an architect or so like things that inspired you to become an architect or what made you pursue your architecture studies and what was that like for you Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've always been naturally um, good at art and graphics. So it was, it was kind of surreal to do science and maths at VCE for the scaling up. But, but the concept of being able to draw something and then seeing it manifest into life in construction was something that I had from a very young age. And so also it's probably worth noting the Asian in me knew that the path, the general typical pathway is to end up doing some form of professional occupation and 
and university. And so I knew from a very young age that architecture was this opportunity of doing science and art and technical and creative and professional vocation. And it wasn't until like year 10 or something, I actually saw a photo of the Salk Institute by Khan. Mm. And it profoundly moved me like so much that I realized that architecture could have a spiritual aspect, you know, it can move deepest part of our soul. And the only other time I really get that um, in terms of things in this world that we can experience is um, music. So to have, um, you know, experience a symphony you know, yeah. and and see how, how the laser composition through beats and notes and tempo can move our spirit as a human being. It, I could see that in the photo of um, the Salk Institute, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sensory systems and it's really interesting to hear that because generally I don't know about you, but when I walk around different spaces, this is prior to me studying architecture, but I used to just have thoughts about how do people come up with these kinds of ideas so like I would see a certain building facade or like the kitchen plan I mean the floor plan of house and it's strange to see how people can just know or have that confidence in being decisive and say this is going to be the facade or this is how your layouts are going to be and my mom her profession isn't creative she's an IT but she loves reading floor plans and I think that somehow influenced her to kind of swerve me into studying architecture (laughs) (laughs) so we I always joke to her about like I feel like I've kind of accomplished the dream that you never knew you wanted to have in some sense that's good I mean that's good that you see it that way I mean for me um I don't know if you played piano growing up but that is the rite of passage of being Asian yeah especially Chinese and (laughs) and at the time i didn't do it because I wanted to do it. I did it because I was, you know, expected to do it. But in hindsight, that's one of the most wonderful things that I did growing up. And and I have this great yearning to play again. And so there is that balance when you're um, a child and you have a parent that feels that they want to share things that are important in this world with you so you can experience and explore, you know, aspects of what's available to us. Mm. And and for you, it's um, realizing that you can grow into the architecture, even if you don't understand everything straight away when you signed up to it. But yeah. somehow, as you get more exposure and understanding, you learn stuff about yourself, or you're learning about what's out there and all the other people that've uh, added to the discourse. You know, mm. the the work. Yeah. But going on about sharing of knowledge, um, I would also like to touch base on this a little bit is about mm-hmm. New Architects Melbourne or as many people would know as NAM because mm-hmm. I knew you are or you were one of the founders of NAM and gathering different architects emerging architects to talk about their practices um, and I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about that and how you've grown that organization as well before going to UZETA. Yeah sure so I was I think I've always been curious at how things are brought together, especially in a organizational form to be able to make a, a strong and positive impact on people. Mm. And, I, and whether that's in business for profit or not, um, I think that entrepreneurial sort of aspect to me was always there. And um, I was a breathe architecture and there was, you know, I think it came 
out quite organically where Jeremy McLeod was recognising that Breathe had gotten to a certain point in their business that there was work being offered to them by potential clients that they couldn't really take on anymore. So he wanted to channel that opportunity for someone else that would really appreciate having an, you know, a project at all. And so as he started talking about that, I think a whole lot of different people in the office, because the studio was about like, I don't know, between five and eight when I was there, people, mm-hmm. and it's grown a lot more now. We all seem to have known someone that's also starting out. So he encouraged us to gather a group of people on a Friday night with beer. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll organise it. And, you know, we borrowed a projector from Stuart Harrison and Marcus White down the road and uh, Multiplicity came and um, so there's Bent came. So there's this whole Brunswick Club thing that was going on for a while. And, uh, yeah, and what was amazing was in the first gathering it was all these people that found me and I found them and they put their hand up to come and present and some people were just starting out and it was speculative work so like in our first session we had architecture architecture and they were showing all these renders because they hadn't really finished anything yet mm-hmm. and we also had Bloxus so Anthony Clark came yeah. and um he had worked with a guy named Peter now in at Breathe up in Sydney I think and so he just moved to Melbourne and the only thing that he had finished at that time was a $70,000 bedroom extension in Hobart mm-hmm. and so he's showing us amazing speculative work like competitions and some of the stuff that he did I think in Japan and so we were thrilled to have someone with that sort of audacity come and present and so yeah and it's amazing that some of these people have been able to come in and out over the years and still share with us their journey and seeing how they've evolved over time so that's really exciting you know so in terms of an organization well you know organization is probably like a really strong formal word and it is more formalized now but for many years it was just kind of like me on my own and it's word of mouth and it's a bit low tech like I didn't even set up a website for three four years because it was only because someone offered to help out. I'm like, sure, you can help out. So I can't do it all on my own. I already have enough on my plate. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, people enjoyed the first one. I thought, oh, we'll just keep doing it. We'll try again in a couple of months. And that's something that was sustainable to balance out my full-time commitment to work. Mm. And then people kept coming. And then I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, let's see how it goes. And we'll do it again and again and again. And I thought, oh, I'm really enjoying this. I think I'm getting a lot out of it. And... And it's a thrill to see everyone come together and check out different studios as hosts. So, so the formula, the format uh, evolved over the first year or two. And you kind of get a gauge of what works, what doesn't work over time. And then, yeah, I remember the first time. So Mike, who used to be the general manager at Go Get in Victoria, came and met up with Jeremy and me to talk about getting car sharing into multi-res developments. And he he was a volunteer at TED X in Melbourne. So he's really into looking at startups and stuff. And when he heard about NAM and he came, he really loved it. And he came up to me one day and said, we want to give you money. And I was just so shocked. I just didn't know. And I sort of re- almost like was 
rejected him (laughs) and he persisted and then we had lunch and I go oh what's the catch and stuff and so then then things kind of got a bit more like robust you know like uh, there was real momentum they started getting real momentum and it just kept going and so it's been like a big in a way it's still it was still a hobby but it was a very serious, intense hobby, just like you're doing this podcast, you know, like it's it's um, something you, you have to be really passionate about. And, and I'm very passionate about people and seeing people flourish. Mm. And uh, I loved how that NAM could facilitate. It was a medium for me to experience what it's like to be altruistic, even if it wasn't like in a church context, you know, yeah. it was in my industry. And I just, even if I've left the profession in terms of practicing the building of buildings now i still really love architects on a very deep level because i understand it, it like i just love the fact that architects are interested in a whole lot of different things and issues and they really believe that they can make the world better so to me they're very interesting people yes we all have our idiosyncrasies and I think some of it is like the training sort of makes us perfectionists but maybe we're it was in us anyway and we're drawn to that group of people that want the same thing but I think the education I had in university level as well as in practice has really held me in good stead over no matter how many careers I have in this lifetime I think the fundamentals of understanding complexity as well as beauty Mm. you know as well as liability as well as joy or sort of all something that I could appreciate from whatever I've learned through that journey yeah so in terms of now now like over the years we had different people come up and ask to volunteer and I would say like the majority of them still around, which is phenomenal. So we've got very long serving people. And, and in the last couple of years, I felt like that something had to change. So you had to step up or something had to get more formalized. Yeah. And so if it wasn't for the persistence of one particular mentor, Matt Tense, who um, I met while working at John Waddles, um, he, he was on two other boards at the time. Wow. And um, so he had, what was amazing about Matt was he was this amazing, special, rare person that understood the intricacies between the commercial world. And because he, he was the commercial manager at Wardles and the non-for-profit world. Mm-hmm. Because by the sheer way that it's structured and the vision of what you're going for changes how you do things. You know, I think he persisted for like two years saying, I want to talk through with you and help you out. And I'm happy to have chats, coffee chats with you and stuff. And I said, no, no, I'm doing film school, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, okay, okay. I don't want to ever say no to people that want to help out. So um, he ended up being a very pivotal person in the development of making NAM a non-for-profit. And and as we were uh, making, creating the board, one person decided that her season was finished in terms of her service to NAM. And so Matt was the obvious first choice to approach. And he said, yes. So we were very, very fortunate. And now he's guiding us through, you know, sort of the legal aspects, uh, uh, requirements, you know, in terms of reporting and stuff. So that's all the boring stuff that happens on the side. But it's um, important. Not that Matt's, Matt's not boring, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, he gives us the support and understanding and the confidence that we needed, considering none of us had experienced that before. The 
the people that were at NAM already. So he was able to help me um, take that risk or leap of faith into another part of the journey. And so the premise was that like I had to go through an internal journey of NAM is something that even though I created it from the start and it's become something of its own um, movement and machine or entity that, okay, can it have a life beyond me? I think it should have a life beyond me. How are we going to do that? And so formalising it with a constitution and a board just helps create a mechanism for it to be sustained as long as the people that are at the reins of it want to keep it alive. Mm. Yeah, so as of like earlier this year, I mean, the surreal thing was last physical NAM, yeah. you can say that and everyone gets that in 2020 now, <laughs> was the M Pavilion. Yeah. <laughs> it was the M Pavilion where I um, co-hosted with Dan a forum. And that was when I made the formal announcement to everyone that it was my last official NAM event. Now, that was before the first lockdown. That was like a couple of weeks before. And yeah, in I hindsight... Yeah, yeah, it was quite a surreal timing thing, you know, by God's grace, it was amazing timing and very clean. And we, um, because Dan Moore had the experience with me doing the podcast and, and understanding the digital potential of NAM, it was quite nat- it kind of fell into place quite naturally that he um, explored what him and the team, I mean, full credit to the whole team that worked very hard on this, yeah. of how to re recalibrate their the mindset in order to make NAM still relevant in the digital space that was enforced upon us because of COVID. Like, so mm. uh, we found someone to replace me on the board and her name's Nikita and yeah. she she's fantastic. I feel like it was in a way meant to be that mm. she came into our world and mm. um, really look forward to seeing how they evolve NAM. That's a really nice history too, like how it grew. And I think that it shows that you kind of have to do persist in terms of making something successful because currently we're living now in the age of where a lot of people are so used to the um, posting about success that sometimes it creates that rose-coloured lenses of an overnight success type of phenomena. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's really important. One of the things that I wanted to explore in the NAM events from the get-go was to present a safe environment, like create a safe environment to be able to let people share the realities of practice. Mm. So in a way to balance out the glory aspects of it, the perceived glory, the perceived polishness, of success that we that you do get on Instagram, for example, you know, mm-hmm. on social media, we get the best versions and curated versions of people, but it's not. And you know, there were so many ideas over the years with, with Nam and how we could evolve it to include people, other types of people in the construction industry, or even potential clients in the general public mm. and stuff. But it has remained naturally focused on the architectural community, which is fine if, if we accept that that's how we want it to stay. Yeah. And the benefit of that is that architects can feel it's okay to share when they rock up to site. And I remember um, John, John from Studio Index shared about, I think it was the Knuckle House or something, and <laughs> I have to check that. But the Knuckle House in, I think, in Northcote or something, and he 
I was, you know, he's come to Nam probably the second or third time to present and he was looking a bit disheveled, but he was like pouring his heart out saying it was pretty much the hardest year of his life. Mm. And he remembered going to site to check the slab that's just been poured and it was just after a massive hail storm. Oh, no. So there were all these like dents in the whole construction, oh, no. in the whole concrete slab. Yeah. And the stress of being to show your client that mm. they've just spent all this money. Mm. It was just bad timing. But apparently they loved it. They actually really loved it and they celebrated it and it's part of the story. So, you know, he felt very relieved. But we could all kind of carry that load with them in that specific moment, you know, mm. especially when you're up and coming practitioner. Mm. When you're doing a startup, the reality is most people are doing it from their living room or, you know, from home and it is a form of isolation yeah compared to working at a practice with its own culture of 10 people 50 people 100 people Mm. the dynamic is very different you have to be more intentional to build your connections and network in as even as a on a support level Mm. you know when you're on your own and so nam was great at having this environment where different small practitioners or startups can meet other people you know you you're forced to kind of mingle and you know there is this tension where there is some form of healthy competition in melbourne (laughs) but i think some people who have a certain level of ambition and drive probably feed off that in a good way to push themselves to be better and other times you know i I mean i've never run my own architectural practice but i have had friends or colleagues or people at nam say oh i just saw that presentation to you know yesterday eugenia it was such a great name i saw that presentation with that architect showing that house and i felt so sick i felt like vomiting or how good it was (laughs) Because I've never, I'm not in that game in in that Mm. sense. Like I am the curator and facilitator of these conversations and that was my role. Mm. But to get those reactions is really fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) And and until you start your own business, like, uh, or your own studio or whatever, then you kind of can see all these things that were really deep in your subconscious coming out and (laughs) it's really a mirror to yourself when you start your own business yeah and all your hopes and dreams and all the money invested to even start something and then seeing someone else just do it faster and better (laughs) yeah but i mean you have a bit of that but yeah it's if anything it's not like oh i'm an insecure person it's more just the reality of putting your life on the line and mm-hmm. and you had to make a choice or make a choice on whether how we want to live out our professional side mm. you know whether it's to work for someone for the rest of our lives or you know or work for other people work for ourselves change your career travel the world whatever it is you know yeah so it's just being very aware and intentional about those decisions and yeah. going through the journey through the ups and downs. That's, you know, that's part of the whole thing. Yeah, mm. really. And so Nam kind of was great to be exposed to <laughs> all that, you know, because I was yeah. so curious on a personal level as well. I think it's nice to bring that level of human quality that a lot of my friends and I, we always talk about how for our profession. I know we need to talk about film shortly, which I will, I promise. Oh, that's fine. Um, But it's about how for us 
the way we're being portrayed by media and society is always about like presenting the finest piece of architecture from your portfolio, like your practice of portfolio or your ideas, at least in the common media. But we forget about how it's always the spawn of an idea and how it develops over time. There's a lot of personal emotions that goes into that project, even though that project isn't yours to keep towards the end. And I think that's why NAM has been really helpful for other people is to bring, again, like breaking that stereotype that the public generally has. And perhaps for us, when we were a student, have on architects. And I really, really appreciate that. So, oh, thank you. I think Melbourne's a amazing. Like, I'm very proud to be Melbourneian, mm. and except for the hay fever. Uh, <laughs> but besides that, I'm very proud to be Melbourneian, and I think the architectural scene here is very vibrant, and we have a healthy mutual appreciation for all the other different. Um, groups of people that are trying to contribute to the architectural community. So like mm. NAM has always had a wonderful relationship with Architeam, for example. Mm. There's, so there's a lot of options for if you want to be involved or want to participate or attend, there is oversaturation of choices to go and engage with the architectural community. And I've been, you know, told by architects in Perth, like they would come here just for the Architeam conference oh and they heard about NAM. They heard about, you know, and and even like with the podcast that Dan and I did with NAM was, you know, I had this married couple from the States and they were, he was, he was the architect and she, she came from a um, fashion background and he was practicing in Oklahoma, you know, and, and they were trying to work out whether to move to Copenhagen Mm. or, you know, there was three options and Melbourne was one of them. And Mm -hmm. because of the podcast, they started looking at all these different architects that were featured in the podcast and they're like, Melbourne is the place to be. So they moved here, (laughs) you know, and to get that sort of like, wow, like I, I think you just kind of don't realise like what we have until you can see people existing in another type of culture yeah, and seeing value in what we do because to us this NAM was every day. It's an everyday thing for me. It just kind of plot along. And so when you get those sort of interactions and feedback, it just makes everything make sense. Like mm-hmm. everything just falls into place and you have to understand NAM is purely voluntary. You know, mm-hmm. no one gets paid, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so there is a cost of expense of time and energy from yeah. people. And um, a lot of what NAM, how NAM operates has to be in good faith, mm-hmm. you know, so to get that is to get that interaction with people and how it's positively impacted them is really important to celebrate because yeah. it comes so far and few in between, you know. So moving on, perhaps like you talked about how you have a very curatorial vision. Was that one of the reasons why you found yourself turning or pivoting towards film? Um, it no, it was a very separate thing in some ways. Um, I guess, you know, I my life is a consistent factor hmm. between the two. Even from a very, very young age, like, I don't know, I knew that I was so hungry from a young age to learn as much as possible because I knew that I wouldn't know exactly what the outcome, what it would exactly transpire to be in terms of how I would explore certain themes. Mm -hmm. 
there's such as like a specific profession I'd say mm-hmm. but what I knew when I was young was I just had to absorb yeah I just had to make myself available and engage and absorb and then I trusted the process that eventually everything would fall into place mm-hmm. and so what you can't really plan out to the nth degree is the timing of the world and economy and all this sort of stuff but mm-hmm. with filmmaking I never really had aspirations or never never thought about it seriously that it was possible yeah and I went through a journey where I felt like I had hit a glass ceiling in architecture and I couldn't see myself starting my own practice mm. you know and it can take up to four years or more to build a, a house and I knew that that was it's you know architecture is a very long game and it is a bit of a marathon or whatever mm-hmm so I had to kind of make some serious decisions and I wasn't enjoying my day to day. And it had nothing to do with the opportunities that I had been given or the people around me or the people I was working for. It was, it was just to do with probably my own personal journey yep. and that I couldn't see me doing it for the next 20, 30 years. Mm. And um, I think I was probably quite tired you know, working, I'm in high pressured sort of situations. So I, I decided to take a break and I had a good friend that is an architect and he, he's a sole practitioner in Collingwood. And he, he said that he signed up to this course at the VCA and I thought, oh, okay, why not? You know, so I, I had these good friends in Sydney who were my Bible study leaders Mm. the time but he's a um he's a cinematographer and she's a set designer and they reviewed the outline of the course for me and said oh yeah it seems like it covers all the basics and you'll get a great overview and that was all I needed to to go yep I've got nothing to lose I'm just going to do it I'm just going to do it and it came to the point where I realized that I couldn't juggle that while running a team of eight people on a $40 million project without, mm. you know, like that, that my classes at night might've been compromised, if that yeah. made sense. So I knew I just couldn't juggle it both and make the most of the experience of learning films. So I quit. <laughs> I, oh, wow. I found another day job outside of the practicing architecture. Yeah. And that's held me in really good stead it's been a really stable job. If you saw that as for what it was, mm. you know, if you saw that that is, it's going to cover your basis so that you can fly on top of that and explore, mm. then that was the combination that I needed to pursue that. And I didn't know how I would go in the school. Like I didn't know how the course would be, but it ended up being such an important year of my life. It just, it just shifted. A lot of things in my life shifted that year. Yeah. my outlook in the future of um, the next 10 years or whatever shifted, you know, the confidence and the possibility that I too could be a director, you know, it's like, in, it's a lot, it's a lot of people's dreams to explore filmmaking, especially for architects. Cause there's a lot yeah. of like crossover, I think in, in the process. And um, because of all the training I've had in the profession, that kind of held me in good stead when it came to film school, because uh, shoots can be a lot of pressure Mm-hmm. Um, but because I had been going through the furnace of architecture, it was fine. I did not. <laughs> I had colleagues in my class that didn't sleep for two weeks. Oh my God. They'd never coordinated people before. They never knew what it was like to bring everything together. But we are so trained in that in architecture that I'm like, I was working hard every day, but I did not lose sleep. And the only time I lost sleep was 
the night in between the two-day shoot for our short film when I had all the lighting gear in this van that I hired in a garage at someone else's house and the thought of not waking up on time to pick up the van with all the filming equipment to drive to the location in Burke Street terrified me. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so I didn't sleep at all that night but besides that it was fine yeah it was fine oh. I was on adrenaline and it was such a yeah a rush and I loved it yeah yeah how's um I think like apart from the coordination part though how has architecture I guess influenced the way you make films or even tell a story as well yeah I mean this is regardless of whether I'm an architectural filmmaker now I think it's just yeah. like yeah, relating to how how has all my experiences in the past shaped me to be the filmmaker I am today, essentially, right? So mm-hmm. I think I think there is an appreciation for composition and to some level lighting, being able to integrate multiple layers of thought and consideration. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the wonderful things about filmmaking and directing that I love is that you can convey stories not just by words but by subtext yeah you know that um the props in itself tell a story the the setting um the buildings itself you know um mm. i think when we were chatting before kimberly we were talking about how profound columbus as a film was to me yeah. you know and so architecture in that film so it's a it's a drama it's about um friendship and family and they use the town of Columbus as the backdrop, as well as the character in the film, you mm. know. And so it represented hope for the female protagonist in the film mm. who was struggling with becoming a carer for her mum at a very young age. Yeah. And so architecture was a, a way for her to dream beyond herself mm. for a future that she wasn't sure could mm. ever happen for her or not you know so so yeah I would say composition I would say layering and rigor rigor is probably a really great word the rigor in filmmaking is what makes a film watchable over and over and yeah. over years as well yeah. things that you pick up and nuances yeah, yeah. and so yeah, I'm sure there's more. I'm sure I'll wake up in the middle of tonight going, damn, I should have said this. But No, it's okay. I feel like I accidentally gave you a curveball question by asking uh, that. I yeah. think it's also because for me, I used to be very critical about how styling works. So um, prior to my architecture journey, I actually wanted to do costume design, if not fashion design. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I think everybody can probably keep Italian how many times I'm going to be saying this but basically whenever I look at film or even I watch an immense amount of Korean dramas and so I get so (laughs) attuned to the sets like I would say oh I recognized some of these locations because it was used in different films and if not it's the styling of people's clothes because they tell so much about the character development so when I started watching a few of the films from Yuzeta so I went on your YouTube channel and then watched all all the films and it was really nice to see how you've portrayed architecture as well as the people who live in architecture Going back to in our previous conversation, you were talking about um, Baraka, like one of the very first films that you were introduced to during studies. And it kind of made sense in the way you directed those, if not staged, the way you transition one panel from the other as well. What do you mean by one panel to another? So um, 
It was, so I had a bit of a look into what Baraka was, so it was like part of the trilogy of the non-narrative. Because of the trailer, it was looking at, it, for us it was to look at what was happening, we didn't really need the narrative spoken by a narrator. Yes, yeah, it didn't have to be orated. Yeah, yeah and to kind of see that hap moments of that in some of your films, like some of your architectural films, and that resonated with me a little bit, which also going on a tangent is why I told you about everything is alive. And it was kind of bringing an element of character to the architecture itself, not letting sometimes, um, not even showing the architects or the designer's face while you while they narrate the architecture kind of gives them a sense of quality rather than having to put a face to a building yeah. as well. Yeah, so you're saying that you can get a sense of the architect's personality and ethos mm. through the spaces they've created even if you don't see the effect see the architect themselves or yeah. hear the architects themselves it the work speaks for itself as yeah. an expression of that person's vision mm -hmm. yeah and i really yeah. do appreciate that because sometimes again it's the when the architecture is not tied to just one person it's tied to a team of people so I feel like in the sense that the architecture that you're capturing now is how do I put it is more of an ensemble of personalities but you just have one to capture the whole ensemble I feel mm -hmm. like I'm not making sense right now <laughs> sorry <laughs> no no it's okay I think I I, I mean uh, your um, reference to Korean dramas triggered another thought mm. to um in response to your previous question so one of the powerful things about film especially if you know now I think you know with significance of Parasite for example is a global appreciation mm. for culture expressed in film and that it's getting more even as a playing field mm. more than ever before you know, reflected in like even the title of the international film category at the Academy Awards, for example. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I experienced in architecture that I loved. It's not explicit in the mm -hmm. work, but the materials and the ethos that is integrated into design, no matter where you are in the world, mm -hmm. does reflect something that it's a story. No matter we go in the world, there's mm. a universal language in architecture using building materials to create shelter mm. and meaning for people that occupy it. Now, film, I think, does that too. Now, the difference is we don't have to go on a plane to experience that or see, you know, like we can get a sense of culture and history and all these layers in yeah. film, you know, as well. Then do you, would you say that that's what you're trying to do with Yuzetta right now or like what type of visions do you have for your company, studio? Yeah, so that's, you know, what was interesting was leading up to it. I think it was more, at the start is like, what am I going to do that mm. I enjoy, that I can see myself spending hours and hours cultivating mm. and setting it up in a way that, um, or picking a medium to express myself that ticks the box of acknowledging that I'm a creative being versus there's an entrepreneurial aspect of me mm. that I'm fascinated by and the perceived freedom of all the opportunities uh, or taking taking on certain opportunities that you can't get just being a mere employee. Mm. 
and through that journey, how do you cultivate beauty? That was always really interesting to me. Then as it as the idea evolved, because it took me a year and a half to bring this all together before I actually launched, you know, it takes time to develop, yeah. a, if you call it a project, maybe you can call that expression of self. Yeah. It's work, but it can be joyful work and it can be important work. Mm-hmm. And then as I was getting closer to understanding what Uzetta was meant to be and what's going to be, I could see a 20, 30 year potential vision of being part of a movement that helps the wider general public understand the value design. Because mm. you got to understand like a few years ago when video just started taking off, the only real version of that in terms of buildings was real estate videos. Mm. Bedroom here, bedroom here, kitchen here. This is the front. <laughs> this is why you should buy it for this price, you know. Yeah. And there's a purpose for that. And I think, you know, the thing with property and real estate is they're unashamedly about sales, you know. Yeah. But there wasn't enough people exploring how film can be such a powerful medium to convey all these amazing considerations that have been put into the building. So I saw an opportunity that I could be the conduit between practitioners in the construction industry, designers, architects, interior designs, whatnot, to the general public in a medium that pretty much nearly everyone has access to. And the reality is not everyone can read plans. There's a preciseness that plans can have that I just really, really love. But the vision that I saw for Uzetta was that it could be part of a movement. Like I'm not going to claim that I'm the sole person doing it. There's people, there's other people already doing it, but it is a new niche Mm. in a market, untapped market. And part of the journey of these filmmakers that are trying to do it within the construction industry is that is educating people of the value of using this medium to be able to communicate what they're on about yeah and so I feel like just like Nam where I learned how to be a curator and facilitator I felt like that's sort of my that can be my role to speak language because film people have their own film speak they have their own language and it's very different to architectural language yep I could yeah. imagine <laughs> and when you're putting a camera in front of someone that's not a media personality professional yeah. there's a lot going on and so I feel like I have this responsibility and opportunity to be able to coach people to make them feel comfortable mm. so that they can present the best version of themselves and represent their company and w- the work that they do as appropriately as possible mm. so that the right people can get a sense of them or they sign up to them now that's the thing like so part of video you know although there is a curation aspect to it that we care about how things look and the beauty aspect it helps demystify a perception of architects, especially Australia, where we have some design, like it's not like as imbued into everyday society or it's not in as part of the everyday layperson as much as some parts of Europe, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is some perception that it's elitist. To have an architect do your house is elitist, for yeah. example, or expensive and all this sort of stuff. Yes, it costs more, blah, blah, blah. That's a different conversation. Yeah. But what, you know, film and video can do is form education to say that a lot of architects are quite personable. So it may form a, f- a sense of like, even if it's not real, like a sense of connection for someone that's never explored what it's like to engage an architect before go through that construction process, it may demystify, make them feel more comfortable 
yeah. to even approach one, to have a conversation what to do with this plot of land that they inherited in the country, you know, for example. <laughs> yeah. So if, if I can do that, I'd be super happy. If my work can help yeah. bridge that gap, I think that's it's going to have done its job. Would you say then that is the ultimate film that you want to do? Because I've got two cheesy questions, I guess. Okay. Overly cliche. And one of them is if you can direct anything that can produce anything any subject you want what would it be then for you ZR? oh wow is that in the list that yeah this is how i do these <laughs> no that's fine i mean that's uh, that's a really interesting question um and you know i had thought about it in the past and probably not so much recently but to be honest it wouldn't necessarily be an architectural film mm. like my film at the vca a short film was because i'm a closet wannabe italian really i saw it this morning as well Ah, oh, so <laughs> it was pretty it. funny to watch. Oh, was it why? <laughs> I like. I just thought the ending itself. It was that we're left with wondering whether, like, will they reunite? Like, I kind of want to know more of the story. So that film is um, a contemporary Melbourneian Italian family take of my favorite parable in the Bible, uh-huh. which to me, like, sort of in in a very short chapter sums up the essence of the gospel very succinctly through that story in a way at the time it was to write a script is very hard i can imagine (laughs) and you have to start somewhere otherwise you can get overwhelmed so i needed to hang my hat on something Mm. and so that parable had enough of a structure because the parameters of the short film it has to be around five minutes and my film was eight minutes all up but Mm -hmm. so I knew that how can I have all those worlds collide and change and shift in a short period of time? And I thought that can happen in a restaurant, Mm. you know? So even logistically, like I could see that the kitchen could represent a particular world that actually supported the personality and the character of one brother. And then the fine dining aspect that's all refined and curated and service orientated and classical music in the background that was to support the perception of the other brother. And so, so these are the exercises you go through in as a director to try Mm -hmm. to add layers and context to your story, you know, Mm. I guess that project, that film, allowed me to explore without feeling constrained that it had to be anything to do with architecture. Yeah. So um, because to have been an architect for that long, you just live and breathe it. And, you know, the times that I feel like in order to be really good and become a master architect one day, it's all or nothing, you know, and that's part of my personality too, all or nothing. Mm-hmm. But it didn't allow me to, or for some weird reason in my mind I felt like I couldn't branch out and so that short film allowed me permission to explore beyond architecture now without denying architecture like sort of appreciating the value of set design and how that can tell a story and I guess doing another type of narrative film Mm. wonderful and I sort of see Zeta as a platform to explore these things and over time like it would be wonderful to even do video art installation Mm. and I have this idea about creating this Zeta that helps with uh, advocating for design and the construction industry but then I want to do this other thing called Zeta Play Mm. and that's when I get to explore through film other things that I'm interested in 
that is free from the constraints of a, like I would be my own client in some ways. You know, yeah. I I um have the freedom to ex- yeah explore themes that I'm interested in. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I'm really, really excited <laughs> for that. Oh, I just got to do it, right? Yeah, <laughs> now, now I'm waiting for it. You've said it, so I'm going to Yeah, no, I know. Uh, I'm not sure. I have not set a timeline for myself. <laughs> like, there's nothing really stopping me from doing it now. Um, that's okay. Yeah, I think to dream is really important. Yeah. I think we all have aspirations deep down and finding that balance each day is really important. To be kind to yourself and kind to your own future yeah, um, and not put too much anxiety and pressure on yourself is, is really important. It's easier said than done. Um, in the previous conversation I had with Yvonne, we were talking about how we're always on the go, that we forget that it's okay to pause momentarily and reflect back on the progress that we that has taken us yes. to here today. Well, I think things like NAM or even um, podcasts like these are really important for the people that are participating and sharing their story because if it does force you to um, reflect upon the journey that you've been on and it is a line, you know, it's a line in the sand or it's a milestone mm. in itself, it's no different to the ritual of having a birthday or Christmas because that's when you reflect. Mm. And I, I had that moment at the end of last year where it was like, oh, man, it's another year, <laughs> another year of what? <laughs> and then the penny, like the penny dropped for me. Like it was like, oh, no, but it was the end of 10 years. Yeah. It was the end of 10 years. And that is like I remember someone telling me once, people overestimate what they can do in one year but underestimate what they can do in 10. Wow. And when, yeah, and when you can see life like that, it's like, oh, that's true. In 10 years I did this, 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 this. Yeah. Right? And you go, okay, okay, then I was ready for 2020. You know, before COVID, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Then you're ready for 2020 and beyond. And like even this year, like separate to COVID and Mm. how that's impacted Musetta temporarily or whatever. Like there's been other things in my life that's been so pivotal and important and that I could have never envisaged at Mm. that moment in December last year, you know. So you never know what's going to come around, what's lined up for you before you know about it already, you know, and that's, I don't know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it does make sense because I was going to ask, like, it leads really nicely to my other cliche question is... Yeah, sure. It's, you know how they always ask you if you you could, would you take that opportunity of having your life being filmed out oh there was a biopic done on me yeah yeah i don't know i'm actually probably more private than you think i am (laughs) fair enough i just thought it's such a it's such a common trivia question that i used to get at parties i just thought oh we're talking about film or yeah right uh no, I'm, I'm much more, I mean, this is the same as Nam as in New Zeta. I'm much more comfortable being behind the camera. Yeah. Fair helping tell other people's stories rather than my own. Maybe to just start wrapping things up because yeah. I could talk to you endless about this, which I really appreciate. But as always, like looking back at it now, again, reflecting on everything we've done so far, um, mm. do you think this is what you wanted as of now? I would say yes, because um, what I've really learned recently, and this is really tied to my faith, Mm -hmm. it's not about focusing on the outcomes, but it's focusing on the journey. Yeah. And so the way I was brought up and the way that I feel like Christ has shaped me is really about character. Another thing that could be said is if you were 
celebrating your 80th birthday, who would you want there to be there with you? And what would you want to say or what would you want them to, to say about you in a speech? Because most of the time it is about relationships and accomplishments rather than outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I care as much about, you know, um, celebrating outcomes for sure and the wins and the loss, you know, acknowledging the wins and the losses. But I really do care about how I go about it. Mm. And um, I do really care about integrity and I do re- really, I, you know, I'm, I'm probably a little bit old school in that way. And I think maybe people like John Waddle had shown me through the way he operates about old school values of loyalty and um, respect and etiquette, you know, those those sort of behaviours getting diminishing mm. over time in society. And so those are values that I really hold to. And and it, so it doesn't really matter if I make three films or 200 films. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If I, if I don't feel rich in love, the value of those relationships, I don't think I have anything. To close off, do you have any other comments or as I'd like to ask, like, do you have something you'd like to say to your past self and something that you'd like to say to the future self? Yeah, I've been thinking about the past self one quite a bit because that's part of the reflection process that these sort of things help bring out. Yeah. I would go back to my 18-year-old self. So I was in second year at architecture school then. Mm -hmm. And I would say to myself then, that you don't have it now, you don't see it now, but you will realise how important having Christ in you Mm. will impact everything you do and how you can't live without him Um, and that you will find the love of your life but you have to wait a while (laughs) (laughs) and that your, your life will be rich in things that you can't imagine just yet but you'll be fine. More of a reassuring thing, I think, if anything, yeah. Uh, and anything to the future if this is the time capsule for instance ah uh, if I was if I was 80 <laughs> I don't know how many years time whichever you'd like um uh, let me think about that for a sec so I mean what I would like to say to my 80 year old self is that you know life is short and it's long but in the long terms meaning all the different seasons and all the different transitions and all the different expressions of how you can experience humanity. Mm. You as a person is someone that I hope that have been true to yourself, you know, um, stayed who you are and be authentic through all the different possible hats that you could be wearing Mm. and that you are someone that can still face yourself in the mirror and be okay with it. Yeah. And I've never wanted to live with regrets. And generally I haven't like obviously I've you know everyone's made mistakes but if I could transpire to be to strive to be the person that I believe that God's made me to be and to live out the purpose that he has set out for me creatively or relationally whatever you call it intellectually etc then that is a full life and that's enough for me Thank you. I feel really touched just listening to that. I got tears in my eyes. You might not be able to see it. That's very sweet, Kimberly. Yeah. Thank you. It's really touching. Um, Again, Eugenia, thank you so much for being a guest on Alchemist Podcast. You have no idea 
how grateful I am. Um, but before we go, I will put this in the notes as well, but would you like to share with us your media handles as well? Yeah, um, sure. So I'm on, um, so my website is EZETA.com. So EZETA.com. My Instagram is at underscore EZETA underscore. I have a mailing list where I have aspirations to issue something per quarter. So I promise not to spam you. So if you're interested in that, please contact me at contact at EZETA.com and I'll put you on. I would love to have you on board and it allows me to just give you updates on the latest work that I've done. And I'm on LinkedIn as well for the more professional, serious <laughs> types, which I just actually started the mm. Zeta page this week. <laughs> so, okay, I need to go and follow that later. <laughs> but um, it's it's been a wonderful experience and I and I thank you so much, Kimberly, for inviting me and allowing me to go through the process of reflecting the journey that I have been on and hopefully some of the things that I've shared um, resonates with your audience. Yeah, thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. And <laughs> if you've got any other topics or any other issues you'd like us to talk about, please message us at Alchemist in the Making or in one word on Instagram. But in the meantime, please stay safe and take care and we will see you for another episode. Bye. Bye. <laughs>